very well from Hebrews chapter 12. Um, every once in a while, um, I and my family need to take a little bit of a break just to keep our wits about ourselves. And uh, when you're dealing with a half-wit like me, it takes a lot. Um, we were supposed to have a missionary speaker here this week. Um, we were supposed to have Tom Wolf here, but he had to he had to change his plan with us. And so when he changed his plan, I, my original thought was to go back to the book of Genesis and just pick up there, but I want to take a one week, one week more, and I want you to turn with me to John chapter 13. And I'm going to be honest with you, I'm preaching a message this morning that my heart needed to hear, okay? I'm just going to give you a little insight. Every once in a while, um, it's not mystical like the Holy Spirit lays it on my heart or anything. I'm not trying to talk mystical here. But every once in a while, I know where my own heart is and I know what I need to hear. And I'm guessing that maybe a few of you might need to hear this this morning. And so, John chapter 13 this morning, um, when we consider some of the interesting things that Christians have done over the years to identify themselves, Christians have done some pretty strange, interesting things. The first century church, they used the fish symbol or the ichthys to, I, to identify themselves as Christians. You could, go to, you could go to places where people were buried and you would know that that person at least claimed to be a believer because many times they would put the fish symbol on the tomb. They would put it on their houses. Sometimes when they were trying to keep their meeting places somewhat from being known by, by all of the officials around them, they would just put a small fish symbol on the ground in the dirt, or they would paint one in water on the door every now and then, so that people who were looking to come and meet with them could find where they were meeting by looking for the fish symbol. How many of you have seen one on somebody's car? Usually the car that's cutting you off in traffic, right? <laughs> right? So that we can be good and judgmental with them, right? Yeah. If you met a believer, or if you met a stranger during that time that you thought might be a believer, you might stoop down and draw half of the fish symbol in the ground. And if they were truly a believer, they would fill the other half in. How many of you are products of the 60s and the 70s? Go ahead, admit it. Do you remember the way that Christians identified themselves in the 60s and the 70s? Maybe this will help you? The one-way movement? And they would meet each other and they'd just point, not that they were number one, it was one way. That was a big deal in the, in the 60s and 70s. In fact, there was a whole, the living, the living Bible came out with the one-way Bible. I still, my sister had one. I still have one in my house somewhere that was my sister's, the one-way Bible. Since then, we've had WWJD bracelets, people wearing crosses, tattoos, lots of signs and symbols. And I'm not here to debate whether or not those things are good or right. But our Lord gave us exactly the way He wanted us to be identified. Did you know that? He, he gave us the way He wants us to be identified. He gave it to us in His own words. And, and I call this the great apologetic. Or it's the proof of our identity. And we find it today in our text in John chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. So if you have a Bible, join me there in John chapter 13 this morning. And we're going to pick up our reading in verse 31. But let's understand where we are here. We are now, when we get to John chapter 13, we're in the upper room. 
Um, we, we see at the beginning of the chapter that, that Jesus and his disciples are about to celebrate the Passover together. And so they have prepared the room and, and they've done all the things they were supposed to do. Jesus has, has met them. He has washed their feet. He has done all these things. And so now when we come to verse 31... Judas has been identified and he has left the room, okay? So that's really important for us to understand. There, there now are only 11 true followers of Jesus and Jesus in this room. So this, this passage of Scripture is, is exclusively, primarily to followers of Jesus this morning, okay? That, that's who this is to. So when we, we now pick it up, verse 31, when he had gone out, that would be Judas. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now... Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him at once. Little children, yet a little while while I am with you, you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Let's pray this morning. So Father, you are a good Father. And we come this morning as your children, primarily in this room. And we ask that you would just Give to us the faith, not just to hear the word this morning, but to go farther than just hearing the word, but to go as far as living the word out this morning. That's going to be hard to do. There are times that, that we don't feel like loving one another. There are times when we have been wounded by one another. There are times when, when we have outright been attacked by one another. But may we as individuals and as a church live up to your example and your call to love, I pray. We know we can't do this in our own strength. So show us from the word how this can be possible for us this morning, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I said, we're in the upper room. We're there, and, and, and in Jesus' heart... <laughs> He realizes what is happening here. He realizes that, that this is it. This is, these are final words to his followers. And, and he has a lot to say to them. In fact, John records them in, in chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. Those are all Jesus' words to his followers in the upper room. And I want you to go back to verse 1 of chapter 13. Because John puts a little commentary in there for us that, that is key for us. So verse 1 says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. Who, who is he talking about, having loved his own? It would be his followers, the ones that John earlier tells us in John chapter 6 and verse 37, the ones that the Father had given to him. These were precious, precious people that, that God had selected and given to Jesus. And it says that he loved them right up to the very end foreshadowing what's about to take place. What's the next major event in Christ's life after the upper room? Well, it's this arrest and trial ultimately leading in what? 
his crucifixion. As I pointed out, notice that Judas is gone at this point in verse 31, when he had gone out. And so now Jesus knows who he's dealing with here. He's dealing with his true followers. And he has some explicit words for them, words that are precious words, words that are important words for you and I today. And the first thing I want you to see here is how John chooses to record for us the love, the love of God, the love of Christ here. Five times in verses 31 and 32, you will find either the word glorified or glorify. Five times. Five times in two short verses. You think God's trying to tell us something here? You think God's trying to make a point here to us? Well, He is. He's talking in the present tense, Jesus is, when He says, now, right now, is the Son of Man glorified. And He's talking about what is about to take place now, that, that's going to be happening here in the next day or two, as, as He goes through. And He says, now the Son of Man is glorified. He's pointing to the crucifixion, and I have to stop here and ask myself this question. How can the crucifixion, this most gruesome form of death, how can a crucifixion bring glory to anyone? How can it? In fact, in that society, a crucifixion was shameful. It was a shameful thing. If somebody in your family had been crucified, if they had been put on trial by the Roman government and been crucified, that was not something you took glory in. It was something you took shame in. And now Jesus is saying that his crucifixion is going to be glorious. I have to stop and think. In my mind, you may want to argue with me, but in my mind, the crucifixion is the single most significant event in all of history. It's, it's the single most significant event in all of history. It, it's in the crucifixion that we see the ultimate triumph of love over evil, is it not? It's in the crucifixion that, that we see God's wrath for sin being poured out on Jesus, and we see Jesus literally standing, hanging in our place on the cross. The crucifixion then, and I don't think I'm overstating this, is the cure for the curse of sin, is it not? The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It, it is the cure for the curse that has been on mankind from the very beginning, from Adam's sin. That curse, we now have a cure for it. And we have to consider that. And we have to consider the love that Christ had to endure that cross. Think about it. Think about the love that Jesus has to have to endure that. What motivates somebody to, to die for somebody else? What motivates somebody to be so obedient to their father that they would go through that? It's love. It's love that puts Christ on the cross. Because remember, he says this about it. I laid down my life. No one took it. I laid it down. And if I lay it down, I can pick it back up again. Did he not say that? This was a voluntary act, an act of the will that Jesus does. When he goes to the cross and he willingly lays down his life for rebellious, undeserving sinners like Dan Scarberry. A love that endured the separation from the Father that takes place when he's hanging there on the cross. 
a love that endures the wrath of God being poured out on him when he didn't deserve it, when you and I deserved it. And make no mistake, if you are alive and sitting in this room today, you deserve the wrath of God, but Jesus took it for you. That ought to make you say glory. Not only the the wrath of God, but the physical suffering that's recounted for us in the Gospels. What motivates someone to do that? It's only love. And notice what it says here. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. Jesus, I think we understand this idea of Jesus being glorified, because who else but Jesus would, would, would do this for us? But how is God glorified in the death of Jesus? And, and, and I had to stop and think about that this week. We like to think of God in compartments, don't we? I do. Do you ever think of God in compartments? Like when I'm angry at the world, I think of Psalm 58 view of God. Anybody else with me? Yeah, God, just, just break their teeth, pour it out on them. I will happily stand in the blood that you shed of them, right? Psalm 58. And we think of God as this righteous, holy God. Or when we are the one who is sinning and we're violating God's holiness, we like to think of God as a loving God, don't we? Or when we're in need, like our bank account is too short and our bills are too big, we like to think of God as the giving God, right? We like to think of God in compartments, don't we? But God is all of these things and so much more. And understand this, friend, that God was glorified in the death of Jesus in this, in that His justice and holiness were perfectly satisfied in the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. Do you understand that this morning? God has every right to judge us in our sins, doesn't He? Church, doesn't He? He has every right to judge us in our sins. We are guilty before Him, and we have no hope. We have no plea. He has every right, but God had a plan and a purpose, did he not? God had a will that he was going to accomplish. And, and that will was, was that he was going to send his son to die in my place, to die in your place, so that God's wrath would be poured out on him, so that his wrath and his justice and his holiness would be satisfied, and that his love would appear to be huge and be, and be glorious. This plan was in the mind and heart of God from eternity to eternity. And I know that's hard for us to understand because we only deal in time. But God knew this from, the, from before the beginning of time itself that this was going to be the plan. Paul, writing about this, says this in a very familiar verse, but I, I want you to look at it with me this morning. I want you to see it for yourself in Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, Paul, Paul writing about the death of Jesus, he says this in verse 6 of Romans chapter 5, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. You can put your name in there if he died for you, right? Christ died for Dan. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even would one dare even to die? But God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, and sinners seems like such a cleaned up word, doesn't it? 
Well, while we were despicable, rotten, rebellious, willfully choosing to rebel against him, while we were that, what did Christ do? He died. He died for us. And Paul says this, this is God's demonstration. God demonstrates his love. In that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And so as Jesus, back in John 13, is talking to his disciples, and he says in verse 31, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. And then in verse 32 said, if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. He's pointing to something future. He's pointing to something that he himself is looking at because we know from the record of scripture that as Christ is facing this great trial, this, this, this huge separation from the Father, he is looking ahead to what God has prepared for him, Right? He's looking ahead to something, and he's looking ahead to, to what Paul writes about in Philippians chapter 2, where, where he is highly exalted and given a name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father. In all of this, in all of this, in all of this, love is clearly shown and demonstrated, and it's exemplified for just put yourself in the shoes of the 11 for a second. Pick your favorite disciple. Don't pick Judas. He wasn't there. Pick your favorite disciple. Put yourself in, in, in that disciple's shoe as they're hearing these words. And then put yourself in, in their shoes as they go to the Garden of Gethsemane and they see their Savior arrested. And you're running for your life away from there because you don't want to be arrested too. Put yourself in the shoes of John and Peter as they go and they have the guts to go at least and be a part of that trial and witness it. And they witness all the lies being told. They witness the atrocities. They witness the beatings. And then put yourself in their shoes as they go to the cross. And they watch this man who they know has all power. This is the same Jesus who brought dead back to life. This is the same Jesus who in the garden demonstrated his power. Remember, when they came to him, he spoke and they all what? They fell down, they fell back. There's a really good reason for why he did that. He was putting them on notice, I have power over you. <laughs> And this Jesus submits himself to the will of the Father, and out of love, he lays down his life. Put yourself in the shoes of those 11 when post-resurrection, Jesus appears to them and he holds out his hands, and they see the scars, and they know what those scars represent. They're very fresh in their minds. Make no mistake this morning, dear ones, make no mistake, Jesus is the perfect embodiment and demonstration of all of God's attributes, and if so, he is the perfect demonstration and the embodiment of God's love. And so, in verse 33, he, he gives them some news that would be hard for them to hear. Little children talking to them in a term of endearment, my dear ones, my, my little children, yet a little while, while I am with you, 
you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. He had told them this before, had he not? He had told them he was going to return to the Father. But now he, in his love and grace, says to them, okay, here's the way it's going to go. I'm leaving. I'm leaving. And you can't come with me. And so in light of that information, this is a good transition verse to go from the demonstration of God's love to this command that he's about to give to them. And so in verse 34, he says this, it's a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Stop just a second there. Because if you're, if you're a Bible scholar at all, you know way back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and in fact, let's go back and look at it. Deuteronomy chapter 6, this is, this is not new that we love one another. Go back, to, go back to the law, if you will, the second giving of the law in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and see what it says there. says there, the Lord our God, verse 4, is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with your soul, and your might, okay? So that's, that's one of the things that he says. Now, go to, with me to Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. Well, not verse 18. Oh, I wrote the wrong reference down, and it's going to bug me. Someone's going to blurt it out. But in Leviticus, he tells his people, I know, that's terrible for a pastor to do, isn't it? I tell you, I don't have my wits about me. He says this in Leviticus, you love your neighbor as you love yourself. 1918. 1918. Okay, thank you. I knew someone would blurt it out. Maybe you ought to come up here and finish this. <laughs> he says, you love your neighbor as yourself. So go back to John chapter 13. How can he say this is a new command? A new command I give you, this is I have love, that you love one another. And then he adds to it. He adds to it. Not, not that you just love one another, but you love how? Just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. As I have loved you, that changes the whole command, doesn't it? It changes the whole command. You see, just like many other instances, Jesus takes an Old Testament principle, and he does this in Matthew 5 several times in the Sermon on the Mount. He takes an Old Testament command, and if you will, he expands it, he makes it go much deeper. Like, don't commit adultery. He said, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say to you, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you committed adultery. He's just made that law even bigger, hasn't he? Or he says, you've heard it said in the law, eye for eye, a tooth for tooth. Jesus said, but I say to you, you go the second mile with the Roman soldier who can compel you to go a mile. I say go two. Now Jesus does this with the royal law, the law of love. Yeah, love one another Love God, love one another, but here's how you love one another. You love them as I have loved you. Again, church, what's the context? Who's he talking to here? He's talking to his followers. 
If you're a follower of Jesus, if you are a Christian, he's talking to you this morning. You love your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ the same way that I have loved you. This is not sappy words or little love notes, although sometimes it's expressed that way. That's not what he's talking about here. This is agape love. That word love there is agape, and it means that it's a love that chooses. It's a deliberate act of the will to enact in ways that benefit others. Whether or not they deserve it. Whether or not they deserve it. I am really good at loving others if they deserve it. Anybody else with me? If you deserve it, I will love you. I have a dog. If she's good to me, I will love her. If she's bad, I will not be nice to her. Some of you think I'm a terrible pet owner. No, she's a dog. She's a dog. Question for us this morning. Anybody willing in this room to put your hand up and say, I deserve the love of Jesus? Nobody. Good. None of us deserve Jesus' love. And I don't know, but, but I know this about myself, I don't love others even though they don't deserve it at times. And at times we go through life basing our love for others on whether or not they've earned it with us. You're guilty of sometimes of doing that in your marriage. How do I know this? Because I'm married. We sometimes withhold or we don't act in loving ways because our spouse absolutely does not deserve it. We are really good at doing it with our children, are we not? You don't deserve my love. And here's the thing. If we were dependent on deserving Christ's love, there would be none of us who would be loved because none of us deserve it. Question for you again. Was Christ's love difficult, painful, and costly? Church, was it difficult, was it painful, and was it costly? Yeah, it was. And I don't know about you, but it is really hard as a believer to love other believers because sometimes it gets difficult, it gets messy, and it gets outright painful, does it not? Loving brings pain. I should probably be a musician. It's like the theme of like every bad love song on rock stations. But let's be honest. Earthly relationships always bring pain, do they not? They involve some kind of pain. And loving your brother and your sister may cost you dearly. Did it cost Christ dearly? Yes, it did. Here's a question for you this morning. How many of us in this room need Christ's love? Where would you be apart from the love of Christ right now? Where would you be? Do you realize you're surrounded today in a room full of fellow believers who need to be loved? They may not express it. They may be kind of prickly. The ones that are prickly are the ones who need it the most. The ones who are pushing you away are the ones who need it the most. They're hurting 
They're discouraged. They're ready to quit. They think they're the only ones who are going through the trial that they're going through, through the pressures they're going through. And you say, PD, how do you know this? Because I'm a man and I feel that way too. Do you not? You say, that's really hard to love somebody who doesn't deserve it. It's really hard to love somebody even though it's difficult. It's really hard to, to love somebody because they need it. Don't they know that I need it too? And I'm going to say to you, it can be done. And I'm not just going to say it to you in a self-help way. I'm going to say it to you on the authority of Scripture. You're not going to be able to love that way through self-effort. You're going to have to depend on Christ and His power. Fast forward now in this upper room address to chapter 14 for a second with me. Go to chapter 14 and go to verse 15. And Jesus says this to His followers. If you love me, you will sing really loud in church and raise your hands. If you love me, you will attend church more than anybody else does. What does it say? If you love me, you will what? You'll obey me. Isn't that what it says? You're going to keep my commandments. And I am so glad that Jesus didn't cut off the address there because that would be hopeless because I can't do it. Can you? And he says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells in you and will be with you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. You see, the only way that you and I can be obedient to John 14, 15 is to do it through the power of the Spirit. He gave us the Spirit to help us. And if it's up to us to be obedient to God, up just totally on our self-effort, we are going to fall on our faces every time. And in fact, mark it down. When you do fall on your face trying to be obedient to God, it's because you're trying to do it in your self-effort. And so we can do the hard thing. We can love fellow believers that sometimes don't act very loving, who don't deserve it. And keep in mind, when it comes to deserving, we have a skewed sense of justice. We are always, we're going to always skew it to our side, are we not? Are we not? I mean, come on, how many of you are Ohio State fans in here? You know we got jobbed, right? Even the Michigan fans got jobbed, right? We're going to always skew it to our side because our sense of fairness always goes to ourselves. We give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. God's so good to give us the why for this command. God doesn't just command us, love one another. Jesus doesn't say, you love one another as I have loved you. He gives us the why. And I'm so glad he gives us the why. And that's verse 35. This, this, is, this is the way that we love one another is, is our great apologetic. It's the proof of our discipleship. It is a great witness to the world. Three times in the Gospel of John, John gives to us the words of Jesus, where he gives us proofs of discipleship. I'll just give them to you. In chapter 8 and verse 31, he gives us this proof of discipleship. If we will hold to his word, then we are his disciples. If we will continue in his words, we're his disciples. 
He gives it here in chapter 13. The way that we love one another is proof of our discipleship. He also gives one in chapter 15 and verse 8. By bearing fruit, we demonstrate that we are his disciples. But this one is the unique one in this. He says here, people are going to be watching and people are going to know. You know, the world doesn't know if you have your devotions, does it? Now, maybe the way you act might reflect that. But, but the world doesn't know that you got up at 5.30 and read your Bible, does it? Unless you are self-righteous and trumpet that to everybody. And then if you are, you're, you're not smart. The world doesn't really even know because they don't even know what genuine biblical fruit is. They don't even know what fruit is in John 15.8, do they? But the world can clearly see whether or not you are demonstrating love to your fellow believers. I don't typically give the names of the people that I quote, but I'm going to on this one. He's an interesting dude, Francis Schaeffer. Anybody heard of Francis Schaeffer? Old guy, theologian, philosopher. He put it this way in writing about this passage of Scripture in John chapter 13. This is what he wrote. Jesus is giving the world the right to judge whether or not an individual is a genuine believer based on their demonstrated love for other believers. Let that sink in. God in His Word, Jesus with His own words, is giving people out in the world, your neighbors, your family members who aren't believers, the people that you work with, He is giving them the right to evaluate whether or not we are truly the followers of Jesus on this one criteria, how you and I show love to one another. It's not on whether we get up on Sunday morning and go to church and they see us going out of our driveway. It's not on whether or not we give money to good causes. It's not on whether or not we're a part of the PTA or anything like that. This is how he gives the world permission to evaluate us. And so I have to ask myself some questions. And I did ask myself some questions and I thought it would be good if I asked you the questions too. Can I ask you some questions? Do we put up with one another like we're supposed to? <laughs> Doesn't that say that in 1 Corinthians 13? Love bears with one another. We, we, we have to put up with one. Guess what? I got to put up with you and you got to, yeah, you got the bad end of the deal. You got to put up with me. Do we speak well of one another? Do we give of ourselves to one another? Do we put others before ourselves? Do we lay down our lives for another? Do our homes reflect the love of Jesus and how we sacrifice for our spouse and our children? Do we forgive and not hold it against one another? Yikes! That's hard, is it not? But are those not all commands of Scripture? Church, are they not all commands of Scripture? 
And I'm going to be honest with us, too often what we show to the world is, is our disapprovement of one another, our complaining about one another, the way that we gossip about one another, the way that we make comments about one another, the way that we're prideful with one another, the way that we do self-serving deeds and don't show care to others, the way that we air our theological squabbles outside of the church walls. And the world doesn't need to see any more of that. They need to see that we love one another. Can I say this to us all? It's okay to disagree with one another if we can do it in love. Because both of us are probably wrong and we'll get it right when we get to heaven. Friend, Jesus is no longer physically here to display God's love. He's not here. Who is he left to do that? Who is he tasked with that responsibility? The church. The church. And how we love one another is a powerful witness to our world or it's a huge turnoff. Is it not? Turn with me to 1 John. I've got a couple moments. Turn with me to 1 John. First John chapter 3, verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we, what? Because we can remember when we went forward in church and we prayed the prayer. How do we know that we passed from death unto life? It's because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this, we know, we, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Go over to chapter 4 and verse 7. Four, seven, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Notice who's taking the initiative here every time with love for us, folks. Who's taking the initiative? God is. And if we're going to demonstrate that with other brothers and sisters, who has to take the initiative? Are you waiting for me to love you or am I supposed to just love? We need to take the initiative in our love. Can I say this to you? Maybe you're here today and this doesn't resonate at all with you. Maybe it's because you don't know the love of God. But you can. Christ died so that you might experience the love of God. And if you are here today and you're the child of God, this is the way. It's not getting a giant cross tattoo on your head or wearing a giant cross or, or drawing fish on buildings or putting a fish bumper sticker on your car and cutting people off on 161. The world's going to know that we're believers by the way that we love one another. So let's confess where we haven't done it well. 
and let's purpose in our hearts to love one another. You with me on that? Father, loving is hard. It's easier to complain. It's easier to withdraw from others. It's easier to, to just give up and go away. But you've called us to love. And I'm so thankful that Jesus didn't withdraw from us. I'm so thankful that he didn't give up on me. And he didn't give up on these, your sheep. Help us to love one another the way that you have loved us. Thank you for loving us that way. In Jesus' name, amen.